it is far easier for the universe as we know it to go out of existence entirely than for the smallest stroke of a letter of God's Word to fail. In other words, God's Word is more enduring than the universe itself. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What is the ultimate source of authority for Christians? How about you, friend? What is yours? Hello there, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part three of a series titled, What Your View of Scripture Says About You. Well, the obvious answer to the question should be the Bible. And for Christians, a reason for that is demonstrated by the life of none other than Jesus Christ. We believe the accuracy of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, because Jesus quoted it often, and He affirmed it to be the very words of the living God. True Christians follow their Master, and in so doing, believe, on the same basis, the New Testament, because Jesus chose the men who would eventually write it. Therefore, every Christian's ultimate authority ought to be the living Word of God. Is that true of you, friend? Is it yours? Keep all that in mind as we join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. Lying behind every claim of truth in our world today, back of every truth claim that exists, there is a foundational authority. The place where that philosophy or that religion stands, the person or persons or the writings or the ideas to which they ultimately appeal as their authority. In fact, when you're speaking with someone about what they believe, this is a great place to start. Ask them the question, who or what is the authority for what you believe? Who or what is the authority for your view of reality. Understand that everyone, no matter what they believe, has some kind of an authority, a foundational authority that is their basis for believing their view of reality. That's true of every person here this morning. In fact, let me challenge you to ask yourself this question, what is the ultimate authority for what I believe? There are many different sources of authority in our world. Some would hold their authority to be some sacred writing. For example, Buddhism is based on the sayings of Buddha that have been inscripturated for them. Muslims would base their authority on the prophecy of Muhammad in the Quran. Mormonism on the writings of Joseph Smith and so forth. There are other sacred writings. For many in our culture, they are naturalists. That is, they they embrace the philosophy of naturalism, which says the cosmos is all that there is or ever has been or ever will be. For them, the authority is really the cosmos itself interpreted by the priests of their religion who are humanistic scientists. Empiricism argues that the ultimate authority is the human senses. Rationalism says human reason. And on it goes. But for most people in our culture, it's not quite so articulate and defined as that. 
In fact, I would say this, for most people in our culture, most of the people with whom you rub shoulders every day, they are their own ultimate authority. The world is increasingly filled with people who create their own unique religion or philosophy. I mean, after all, we have designer clothes, we have designer dogs, why not designer faith? They just look at all of the available ideas, all of the available philosophies and religions as kind of a a buffet restaurant, a buffet line in which you go through and, and you select the parts that seem right to you and that you like, that appeal to you. Oh, I'll have, I'll have a little Christianity. Yeah, I like Jesus. You know, I think he's a wonderful person, and there's some great things in the Bible. I'll have some of that. Give me some of that. Oh, and, you know, I like, I like the experientialism of Eastern mysticism, so throw some of that on my plate as well. And, oh, I really like that part of postmodernism that says that truth and ethics are relative, and so I'll take some of that too. That's how a huge percentage of Americans approach what they believe. It's a kind of a Mr. Potato Head approach to religion and faith. I take the parts I like, and I put them where I want them, and that's what I believe. Now, if you take that approach, what is the real source of your authority? What is it? It's yourself. It's your own mind. Ultimately, your authority in that approach must either be your own reasoning or perhaps what you determine to be the reasoning of a consensus of people that you respect. So on the sole basis of your belief in either your own mind or in the reasoning of the minds of a consensus of others, you are staking your eternal life and destiny. Ultimately, on yourself. But what about for us as believers? What's our authority? What is the ultimate source of authority for us? You might be tempted to say the Bible, and that's true as far as it goes, but it doesn't go quite far enough. Because the next question is obviously, why do we believe the Bible? The primary reason you and I believe the Bible is Jesus Christ. We believe the Old Testament because he quoted it often, and he affirmed it to be the very words of the living God. We believe the New Testament because Jesus pre-authenticated it by choosing the very men who would write it, or under whose auspices it would be written. So our ultimate authority then is Jesus Christ. And in reality, that's the point Jesus is making as he opens the body of his message in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus essentially says, as my disciples, you must believe about the Bible exactly what I do and because I do. That's really the major thrust of the opening paragraph of the body of this sermon. We've really just begun to study it. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, and let me read the paragraph for you. This is what Jesus said. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished." 
Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven." Now, we have encapsulated the the real thrust of this paragraph in this brief summary. A true subject of Jesus' spiritual kingdom will always have a right relationship to the Scripture. A true Christian can always be recognized by how he or she responds to the Scripture. I noted for you last time, just to give you sort of a roadmap for where we were headed, that Jesus identifies in this paragraph three responses to Scripture that should characterize every genuine believer. In verse 17, he says we must understand Jesus' relationship to the Scripture. In verse 18, we must believe Jesus' view of the Scripture And in verses 19 and 20, we must accept Jesus' diagnosis with the Scripture. By that I mean, Jesus says your response to Scripture diagnoses your spiritual condition. It shows whether you are in the kingdom but least, in the kingdom but great, or not in the kingdom at all. Now last time we looked at the first response that we should have to the Scripture, and it's this, understand... Jesus' relationship to the Scripture. There was a lot of confusion about how he might relate to all of the revelation that had come before, and Jesus wants to clear that confusion up with his disciples. So in verse 17, he says, do not think. I don't want you thinking like this about my relationship to the Scriptures. Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill Now, when Jesus preached this sermon, there was already a definitive list of books that were accepted in the first century as having been breathed out by God. What were those books? Well, Jesus calls them there in verse 17, the law and the prophets. As we learned last time in detail, the books to which Jesus referred, those books which constituted the Jewish canon of the first century, contained exactly the same content, although the numeration of the books was different, the same content as in our English Old Testament today. The 39 books identified as the Old Testament in your Bible were considered in Jesus' time undeniably, unequivocally, to be the inspired Scriptures. And Jesus here identifies those 39 books that we call the Old Testament as being God's very words to us. Specifically, Jesus makes two points about how we who are his followers are to understand his relationship to those scriptures. First of all, we noted this last time, he said he did not come to abolish the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, Don't you for a moment believe the common misperception that I have come literally to demolish, to tear down in my teaching the place and authority of the Old Testament Scriptures. Moreover, he said, I came to fulfill the Old Testament. 
We looked last time at what that means. I think it's a, it's a term which is in itself full of meaning. I think he was saying three things when he said he came to fulfill it, and these are confirmed by other places in Scripture. First of all, he fulfilled it by bringing out the complete meaning of Scripture in his teaching. He filled out its meaning. He's going to do that right here in the Sermon on the Mount in the weeks and months ahead. He fulfilled it, secondly, by perfectly obeying it in his life. And he fulfilled it, thirdly, by bringing the full message of the Old Testament to complete fruition in his own life and ministry. Or to put it differently, Jesus explained the Old Testament in his teaching. He obeyed the Old Testament in his life, and he embodied the Old Testament in his person. He embodied all of those ideas and ceremonies and those pictures in his own person. He was the fulfillment of them. Now that brings us to the second response that all of us who truly belong to Jesus' kingdom should have toward the Scripture. Not only must we understand Jesus' relationship to it, as explained in verse 17, but secondly, we must believe Jesus' view of the Scripture. We must believe his view of the Scripture. Notice verse 18. For, now notice the connecting word. This is joining us back to verse 17. Here's the reason Jesus did not come to tear down, to demolish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. Here's why. For truly, I say to you. Stop there. That is one of the most familiar sayings that our Lord used to introduce some of his most strategic comments. The Greek word for truly is a Hebrew word that has simply been transliterated into Greek. In fact, it's a Hebrew word you know. You may not know that you know it, but you know it. It's the Hebrew word, amen. Did you know that was a Hebrew word? It is. It's a Hebrew word. In the Greek text, it reads, amen, but it's basically just carried straight from Hebrew into the Greek text. It's translated here as truly. The word amen refers to a statement that is firm and reliable. When it comes at the end of a sentence, it could be translated either let it be true or it is true. Occasionally in the service like this, you'll, you'll hear a song or you'll hear something I say and, and you'll respond to it with amen. At least some of you have a little Baptist blood in your background. (laughs) What are you saying? You're using a Hebrew word. You're saying, that's true. That's exactly right. That exactly corresponds to reality. That's what you're saying. Now, at the beginning of the sentence, as Jesus uses it here, combined with, I say to you, and our Lord often puts it this way. In fact, in John's gospel, he often doubles it. Amen, amen, I say to you. I think some 25 times in John's gospel he puts it that way. When you put those together, it could loosely be translated in English something like this. Listen to me. Let me tell you the way things really are. That's what Jesus is saying. Here is the way it is. This is amen. This is firm, reliable, certain. What I'm about to tell you 
will not be changed or altered. In the Gospels, it is Jesus' unique way to add veritas and weight and solemnity to the statement that he makes. Jesus, in fact, uses this expression, truly I say to you, or amen I say to you, 31 times in Matthew's Gospel. Here, he uses it to punctuate and underline his view of Scripture. Jesus here tells us what he himself believed about the Old Testament and what we should, therefore, as well believe. And he does so in one of the most powerful and compelling statements Jesus ever made. Matthew records it for us in the rest of verse 18. Look at it again. Verse 18. For amen, reliable, trustworthy, this is the way it is, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Wow. Just let that sink into your mind for a moment. That is not a statement to read past quickly. That is a profound, life-changing statement from the mouth of our Lord. Now notice, instead of repeating the expression, the law or the prophets, that he used back in verse 17, he simply shortens it in verse 18 to the law. And yet he is still talking about the Old Testament in its entirety. The word law is often used in the New Testament to speak of the entire Scripture. Let me just give you a couple of examples so you don't take my word for it. You can look later at John 10.34, John 12.34, John 15.25. All of those refer to Psalms and call them the law. It's written in the law. In 1 Corinthians 14.21, Paul quotes from Isaiah and calls it what was written in the law. And in Romans chapter 3, verse 19, you remember that list of verses Paul strings together to indict all of humanity? No one is righteous, not one, and so forth. And he talks about man's sinfulness. And a series of references taken from both the Psalms and the prophets, and he calls that the law. In the law, it's written. So in verse 18, Jesus is still talking about the entire Old Testament Scripture. In the statement that follows, Jesus affirms in the strongest possible terms his confidence in several unchanging attributes of the Scripture. You and I must believe about the Scripture what Jesus believes about the Scripture. And he's going to tell us in this verse what he believes about the Scripture and specifically several unchanging attributes that are true of the Scripture. Let's look at those attributes together. The first attribute that Jesus identifies, let's call its permanent authority. It's permanent authority. Notice what he says in verse 18. Amen, I I am saying to you, until heaven and earth pass away. It is forever. It is permanent. Now, there are two possibilities as far as what Jesus means by that expression. He may be referring to the actual day that is coming when the present heavens, the universe as we know it, and earth will be completely destroyed. Did you know that day is coming? 
Peter describes it. Here's how he, he describes it in 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up, be consumed, be destroyed. This universe as we know it is not permanent. It is a disposable universe. So Jesus may be saying that God's Word will endure as long as this present universe stands until it's completely destroyed. That's possible. But I think it's more likely that Jesus is using these words as a proverb. A proverbial statement that really means never. It would be the polite version of the rather vulgar English expression, until hell freezes over. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. Now the reason I think this is what Jesus means is is how he uses this expression in a similar context. Listen to Luke 16, verse 17. He says this, It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. You see how he uses it there? It's easier. Clearly in that context, Jesus is contrasting the likelihood of heaven and earth being destroyed with the likelihood of any part of the law being destroyed or annulled. And Jesus says it is far easier for the universe as we know it to go out of existence entirely than for the smallest stroke of a letter of God's Word to fail. In other words, God's Word is more enduring than the universe itself. What do you think around you is the most stable thing in this world as we know it? You might be tempted to say, you know, those great old trees. Well, we saw this last weekend on the news what happens to those trees. They're certainly not stable and enduring. They can be swept away in a moment with the power of a tornado. Maybe you might be tempted to think it's the hills, the mountains themselves, but they're not always forever. We've seen the mountains eroded by a massive volcano as they just melt away. It's not the elements you learned in chemistry class. It's not the planet itself. The most stable, unchanging reality on this planet anywhere is that Bible that you hold in your hand. According to Jesus himself, it is the one thing that will survive when everything around us is fully destroyed. That's what he's saying. It's permanent. It's unchanging. It's unwavering. It is eternal. It is our rock of Gibraltar. So many texts of Scripture make this point. Let me just point out a couple to you. In Psalm 119, the psalmist celebrates this again and again, but notice a couple of them. Psalm 119, verse 89. The psalmist writes, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your word literally stands firm in heaven. It's not tied to this planet. It's not tied to what may happen here, whether it continues to exist or someday you destroy it. Your word is forever settled, and it stands firm in heaven itself. 
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his series, What Your View of Scripture Says About You. Tom will have part four next time, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, Tom, it really can't be overstated that the written Word of God and the living Word of God should be the believer's ultimate authority. Isn't that right? That's exactly right, because when you think about it this way, Jesus is our Lord. We've confessed him as Lord, and so he, the living Word, is our authority. He said, you must obey me. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? But how do we know what Jesus, our Lord, wants? And the answer is solely in the written Word. And so for us as 21st century believers, the greatest authority for us is the written Word of God because it's in the written Word of God that we learn the authoritative commands of the living Word, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so really the two come together to be our great authority. Thanks, Tom. Church leadership can often seem like hazardous duty. Leaders can have both mountaintop experiences and seasons of discouragement. How can you, as a leader of Christ's church, faithfully respond to the different perspectives on leadership and the trials and triumphs of ministry? In Tom Pennington's book, Faithful Stewards, Tom identifies three key perspectives on church leadership that can help you maintain spiritual stability in ministry. Purchase your copy of Faithful Stewards today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. 